and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. This morning, help for improving our witnessing for Christ to the loss from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And now, Pastor Robert Elliott. As the Spirit of God controls us, He gives us new and improved prayer. And that prayer looks like tenacity, it looks like alertness, it looks like thankfulness, and last, it looks like supplication. The latter part of verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned. Supplication is prayers for other people. And we should pray for others. During one worship service, a pastor articulated what he feels he saw that evening, and if I'm honest, I feel the same way, and many other pastors, if you ask them, they would be honest to say that's how they sometimes feel as well. The pastor looked out over the congregation, and in his heart, he said, Lord, attendance is just not what I would like it to be. And the Lord impressed on this pastor's heart this, my son, attendance is not what I'd like it to be in heaven. We need to pray for lost people to come to know Christ. We need to have that regularly on our prayer list that lost people we know and rub shoulders with would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior before it's too late. This young man I cited prayer for, Alex Novak, he was a, a victim of foul play this week. It looks like someone drugged him into unconsciousness, stole his car and his ATM card, and the police, led of the Lord in answer to prayer, caught the people who did that at the banking machine trying to steal his money. They got him to the hospital. The doctor said if he had been one hour later, he would have been dead, 30 years old. We don't know what anybody has by way of a lifespan. Alex knows Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But what about the people around you who may not see next Sunday? They're healthy right now, but maybe they won't see next Sunday or the end of September, or Christmas? Are we telling the lost about Christ? Are we praying for their need of Jesus? Their need of money, their need of a job, their need of peace in their family, those are needs, but that's not the fundamental need of a lost person. The fundamental need of a lost person is salvation. Are we praying for that? Are we doing our part to answer that prayer for them to get saved by sharing the gospel? Not leaving it to somebody else, but sharing the gospel. And so new and improved prayer looks like tenacity, alertness, thankfulness, and supplication. And you can see here clearly that Paul wanted something for these lost people that he was in contact with or would be in contact with. He asked the Colossian believers to pray that there would be a door of opportunity open for him to make the gospel clear, verse four, that I may speak it clear in a way as I ought to speak. By asking for that prayer, he was also asking for the salvation of those he would be giving a clear gospel presentation to. And while I'm at a clear view and presentation of the gospel, may I remind us in this confused and messed up and theologically illiterate time in which we live where so many pastors don't know what the gospel is, that the gospel is not about name it and claim it prosperity. 
nor is it about material things at all. The gospel is not about social justice. The gospel is not about politics, nor is it about physical wellness. The gospel is not about patriotism. The gospel is not about a certain music style. The gospel is not about personal power and success. The gospel is not about pyramid sales. The gospel is not about mind control. The gospel is not about positive thinking. And the gospel is not about personal happiness. The gospel is about Christ laying down his life and blood to make the forgiveness of rebel sins possible. That's what the gospel is about. All to the glory of God that God could save a reprobate, a rebel, a mocker, and make him new, make her new, reconcile that person to holy God without holy God changing anything of his holiness. That's what the gospel is about. That's what we need to be about as individual Christians. That's what we need to be about as a church. Have we lost our way on that? I'll let you be the judge of that. And so in the first place, new and improved is new and improved prayer in this passage. In the second place, new and improved is a challenge to the lost with our changed lives. Or this is new and improved evangelism. Evangelism is just maybe a fancy word of saying sharing the good news that Christ is Savior and wants to save a person. That's evangelism. And in verse 5, look at it with me. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Here we are called to new and improved evangelism by a certain conduct. We're called to conduct ourselves with wisdom. The Greek word here is Sophia. We are called to live with lost people with Sophia wisdom, which is, listen, Sophia wisdom is excellence in practical common sense living. We are to conduct ourselves with the lost people in our families, with the lost people at our workplaces, with the lost people in the towns in which we transact. We are to conduct ourselves in wisdom, which is excellence in practical, common sense living in challenging situations. I know some of you have done what I have done. When a cashier has given you too much change, you've told them. See the reaction? Oh, wow, you're honest. Yes. Because my Savior's not a cheat. Challenge the lost with a changed life, also known as new and improved evangelism. And God says that our voice in evangelism is powerized by the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God working in tough situations. When we find ourselves in tough situations, pressured situations, unpleasant situations, that's when our speaking of the gospel can have even more clout. Christians, when it comes to evangelism, are like tea bags. We're not much good unless we're in hot water. What hot water might you be in right now as a Christian? This is the season for weddings. Some of you maybe have to go to a family wedding that will be raucous and not honoring to Jesus. What are you going to do with that at the reception? Are you going to tell anybody who doesn't ever go inside a church building how to get saved at a raucous reception? That would be a good way to redeem the time. Or what about the tough situation, the loss of a loved one to death or the loss of your job? When you start speaking the gospel and wanting to help others into heaven, when you've lost your job, it speaks mightily. 
or a serious illness or a prodigal child or a loss of reputation, someone who ran you into the ground unfairly, when you start talking about how others can be saved by um, humbly and prayerfully and lovingly giving the gospel, people sit up and notice when they know you're hurting. You're not thinking about yourself. You're not doing a pity party because of all of the pressurized situation you find yourself in. You're concerned of others more than yourself. You want to see them get to heaven. Then the lost stand up, sit up, and listen. And guess what the good news is? (laughs) Since all of us who know Christ have stress in our lives, all of us should be effectively vocal for the Christ. (laughs) The hot water's all around us all the time, and we're tea bags in the water. Let's be useful and make a cup of tea, and this metaphor tells somebody about Christ. Larry Moyer, who's spoken at our church and taught me a lot about evangelism at Dallas Seminary, says there are two blockages to personally telling people about Christ cold feet and cold hearts. When we let our fear stop us from telling other people about Christ, that's cold feet. When we don't care about them enough to tell them about Christ, that's a cold heart. And now, today's personal God story. Hello, my name is Karacy Miller. I just want to talk a little bit about my God story and how I came into becoming a Christian. I cannot tell you the exact date or time, but I have believed in Christ since I was a little child growing up in this very church, which is Calvary Bible Church. It has not always been an easy road. Although I always believed in Jesus, there were times in my life where I put my needs and the needs of others before his will. I made some wrong decisions and I left God out of it. But whenever I called upon him for strength and mercy, he always answered and was always forgiving. And I realized that I was headed down the wrong path. I came back to know my God personally, and every day I'm blessed and strengthened by his grace. To me, Jesus is everything, and without him, there would be no me. I look forward to fulfilling God's plan for me. His mercy is great, and although I do not deserve it, how else can I try to repay him for such his blessings but by following his will? And I want to say that it's always okay to come back to him if you may have strayed. His mercy is great, and like the parable of the prodigal son, God is patient and a forgiving God. By doing his will, I am able to show and and testify that we all have sinned and we all have come short, but he is ever so forgiving and and ever so loving and I'm thankful today that I can share my testimony with you and I hope that if one person is able to come to the Lord because of this then I can say I've at least done his will thank you and that's my God story today's help for the hearing segment is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church's Christian Counseling Center The center is located at 58 Collins Avenue, Nassau, Bahamas. If you would like an appointment or more information, dial 323-7000. 
That's 323-7000. Or email them at cccbahamas at gmail.com. And now, the Executive Director of the Christian Counseling Center, Pastor Frederick Arnett. Good morning again, and thank you for having us in your home. Again in the studio with me is Deborah Arnett. And uh, the question that I have for you this morning, Deborah, is how do we as a nation foster honor and respect in our children? There is no simple answer for this. Um, but the thing that just jumps out at me right away is the fact that it's very important for parents to model the respect and the honor that they want their children to live out and walk out. Um, I think it's important that they model it as opposed to demand it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just simply demonstrating courtesy when you walk in the bank and saying good morning to everybody. That's important. That's a form of respect. That's a form of honor. That's something that you should teach your children. But it is also this issue of embodying integrity. Um, if you want to be respected by your child, if you want to be honored by your child, it is very important that you be a man or a woman of integrity, that you relate with integrity. Your children are watching you. Mm -hmm. They're watching you better than you think they are. Even if they seem embedded in that um, Samsung product or um, the iPad or the iPhone, they are attending to the way that you live your life. And they tune in at times where you think they are most distracted and aloof. And so they're paying attention to the way that you walk and the way that you deal with things. Mm -hmm. And if you're not embodying integrity, um, it provides them with justifications to not honor you and to not walk in respect. Now, as I said last time, it's important no matter how you conduct yourself that your children honor you. But at the same time, if you want to foster honor in your children, living a life of integrity is non-negotiable. Right. Also, last time I addressed the issue of the way that you talk with your children and the way that you communicate with your children. And for some parents, particularly when they're highly frustrated with a child, they feel that screaming tirades is an effective way of evoking honor and respect, particularly when they observe their child's body posture demonstrate that the child is afraid, cowering, um, retreating. That parent can feel empowered by what they're doing and what they're saying and the reaction of the child. But screaming and ranting does not evoke respect. It just evokes fear. And fear only works for a season. It also demonstrates rudeness and rage. It does not demonstrate the appropriate way to navigate various different challenges, frustrations, or even to appropriately express your anger. And so it becomes this very complicated situation where the child will perceive anger as bad or negative, particularly when your child models this behavior in another environment and they are chastised, corrected, punished, disciplined by whoever the authority is in that environment for their anger or their outburst of anger. Mm -hmm. um, but they're living out what they see you live out. Right. But you know, I've heard parents say over and over, the child will not move unless I shout, unless I scream at him or her then the child would make an effort to do what they want them to do. Uh, what do you think brings that about? Why is it that uh, they feel that it's necessary to scream at the child, 
to get well, the Imola to do what they want I, them to do. As I just mentioned, of course, um, there's a sense of power when you do get that response. And if you feel powerless as a parent and you get a response, then you feel empowered. And so what you yourself are doing is that you're teaching yourself that you have to behave a certain way in order to get what you want. And that's power in your home. That's control over your kids. But it's ineffective because what you're more than likely doing is evoking a flight, fight, freeze response. Okay. So you're getting a reaction that's not a thought out reaction by your child, particularly when they're younger. Um, and these are natural responses, or we would call them emotional re reflexes, where the body engages a response to protect itself. So if someone's raging and ranting and screaming, or even unfortunately becoming physical with you, mm -hmm. you are either gonna fight back, you are gonna run, or you are gonna freeze. Those are not healthy responses um, when it's in response to a parent's rage or tirades or yelling or screaming. Um, but they are natural responses of the body when the individual or the child feels threatened. And we all engage in these responses when we feel threatened. Um, another thing that's very important that we can probably unpack the next time related to your question is that it's important to foster discipline. Okay. And that is the way that I would suggest that you tackle this issue of promoting your child's respect and honor without yelling, screaming, and ranting and raving. Okay, thank you very much, Deborah, and uh, thank you for uh, speaking to this, and we will continue the next time, God's willing. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. Once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliott. I have an interesting question I'd like to try to answer, and it's this. Christians talk about being hedged in by God's protections. Practically speaking, can we grow our hedges? It's a good question. Give me pause to think about it and to research it. It forces us really to consider the delicate balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty is the belief we have based on scripture that God's in control of everything. He's the king, he's the boss. And human responsibility is the equally taught uh, biblical doctrine that we have responsibility to uh, obey God, to uh, put into practice truth and so on. As a balance between uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, a very good text to look up, and I'll leave you to do so, is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. But when we come to the specific topic of a hedge of protection, I think of uh, Psalm 139, verses 5 and 8. And in those verses, basically, we are shown that there is a God instituted hedge of protection around his children that's a 360 
degree hedge of protection. And this is what it says in Psalm 139, verses 5 and then 8. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. It's down to verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. This is saying that God uh, protects and watches over us as his children in a manner that is a 360-degree hedge. God's behind us. God's ahead of us. God's over us. And God is under us. This reminds me of God's all-surround love, which is described in Ephesians 3, verse 14, and going through verse 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man." So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So whether it's Psalm 139, or whether it's Ephesians 3, God builds a hedge of protection around us as his children. And that hedge protects us behind, ahead of us, over us, under us. To make this a little more um, clear, I hope, when I think of this hedge of protection concept, I also think of real people in the Bible. And I'm going to let you look up their stories on your own time if you care to do so. For instance, Moses, Exodus 17, 8 to 15. Uh, Moses was the intermediary between the whole nation of Israel and God. And he grew the hedge And we can grow others' hedges by intercessory prayer. In other words, I'm saying that as Moses prayed for Israel, Moses' prayers were used by God, and God built a better hedge around the nation of Israel to protect them because of Moses' intercessory prayers. Or I think of Daniel's uh, friends who were abducted, kidnapped, deported as teenagers to Babylon, along with Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 3, verses 14 to 27, there were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they, according to their convictions not to dishonor the God of the Jews, put themselves in the place of needing a hedge of divine protection. Basically, they wouldn't bow to an idol, and they knew they faced being cast into a fiery furnace, and they wouldn't bow to the idol. So, in sense, by acting on their own convictions, their own understandings of Scripture, uh, their loyalty to God, they grew their own hedges uh, by staying true to God while their very lives being threatened. Or I think of Daniel himself, still in Daniel, but this time chapter 6, verses 10 to 23. As you may remember, Daniel, there in Babylon, maintained his daily spiritual disciplines, which indicated that he had both a clear conscience and an utter, complete dependence on the Lord there in Babylon. And so we can grow our own hedges 
when we walk disciplined with our Lord and when we trust him for our well-being and when we are free from unconfessed sin, which we see was the case in Daniel 6, verse 22 for Daniel. Then I think of our Lord Jesus himself. How about hedges of protection with respect to our Lord Jesus? In Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 19, Jesus referred, quote, to my appointed time, end quote. By this, Christ was recognizing that the cross was an appointment and it would not be realized early to God's plan, nor would it be realized late to God's plan. And there was a sense in which no one could have possibly killed Jesus before God's appointed time for that. And so our Lord slipped through the mobs who were intent on stoning him before the cross, and he wouldn't jump off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem when tempted by Satan to do so. Now, we know that, of course, we are distinct from our Lord Jesus, but we too have appointed times to die. Uh, We have pre-established lifespans. That's what Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16 teach us, that God has written into his book for each one of us the days that he's appointed for us before any of us have had even any of those days. And so we, like the Lord Jesus, we have an appointed time to die, and we're going to get every day that God wills for us to have in his plan. And this wonderful reality makes the point that with respect to protection from our physical deaths, God's hedge is up for each of us even before we're even conceived. Amazing. We all get every day that God has planned for us to have. Even before we were born, God made the plan. And so to summarize, we can grow the hedge of someone else's divine protection by praying for them like Moses did for Israel. And we can grow our own hedge of divine protection by standing with God in faith when we're threatened, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel did. We can also grow our own hedge of divine protection by walking in a spiritually disciplined way with God day by day, by actively trusting God for our well-beings and by living free from unconfessed sin in our lives, like Daniel did all those years in Babylon. So, very interesting question about hedges. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.